So who would you die for? For whom would you give your life? I'd invite you to just take a moment and think about that. I realize it's hypothetical, but if you can, I'd like you to try and imagine a situation in which you were called upon to sacrifice yourself for the sake of someone else. And who might that be? And what kind of person would you consider to be worthy of such a sacrifice? Who would you die for? For whom would you give your life? Well, it's a rare thing indeed when Paul is tongue-tied. A rare thing indeed when Paul's theological reach exceeds his verbal grasp. But at least according to one commentator, that's exactly what happened as Paul wrote our text from Romans. What he was trying to describe was so strange, so beyond human imagining, that Paul struggled to describe it at all. Now, he had just explained the implications of Abraham's faithful response to God's faithfulness. And while densely packed, the passage, I think, is pretty clear. Abraham's justification was not something earned by good works, but a gift from God. It was not the wages of proper behavior or a reward for keeping the law. Before Abraham was even circumcised, before Abraham had done a single thing, God declared Abraham to be righteous. All that came after the circumcision included was Abraham's way of saying yes to what God had already done. And so, Paul argues, anyone who thinks that they can earn their way to righteousness, anyone who believes they can earn their salvation, needs to take another think. God offers blessing, and in faith we say yes to it. And that yes is, by the grace of God, reckoned to us as righteousness. And everything that comes after that is simply our response to God's already given and graceful gift. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Christ, we Gentiles also have access to God's grace. And to that, all we can say is God is good. I mean, that's our boast. We have access to grace through Christ because God is good. And it's on that grace that our salvation rests. Well, having been justified, Having been made righteous by simply saying yes to God's gift, we are, Paul says, at peace with God, but not necessarily with the world around us. There may well be suffering and other bad things which come our way. But even then, Paul says, even then we can boast of God's grace, which not only sustains us in suffering, but may even redeem that suffering and so use it for our benefit. And so Paul says that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, which is the ability to understand ourselves as always and forever secure in the love of God and in the promise of salvation. And hope does not disappoint, Paul says. It does not let us down because it is a hope given to us by the same faithful one who made such enormous promises to Father Abraham and to Mother Sarah, made those promises and kept every single one of them not the least of which, Paul says, was the promise of the Holy Spirit, now resident in every believer and in every community that follows Christ. But now comes the hard part, the part that made even Paul stumble, the part that makes no sense at all in human terms, the part that if we think about it may even offend our human sense of justice and fair play, our sense of justice that we need in order to make sense of the world, our sense of justice which requires that the bad guys get punished, 
and the good guys get rescued, and that everything ends fairly. But Paul tells us that's not what happens in God's salvation. In God's salvation, the bad guys are rescued. The tares are saved. The goats benefit from God's saving act in Christ. As Paul made clear earlier, there never was any way for us human beings to become good enough to deserve salvation. And so God just went ahead and saved us anyways. Now, the New Revised Standard Version translates verse 6 as follows, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. But as one commentator argues, that translation softens the hard thing that Paul is trying to describe. And so he suggests an alternative reading, one that actually shows up in the New English Bible. And that translation is this, At the very time when we were still powerless... Christ died for the ungodly. Paul's point is not so much that the death of Christ was good timing on God's part, but rather that it was morally inexplicable. The point is that Christ did his saving work at an unexpected and morally considered inappropriate moment. Unworthy, genuinely ungodly people benefited from it. It's the shocking nature of God's gift that seems to cause even Paul to struggle. Commentator Carl Holliday suggests that we contemporary Christians have come to take the death of Christ for granted. To us, from so many centuries distance, that death seems inevitable, necessary, even obvious. Of course Christ died. But, Paul, but Holliday argues that Paul did not see that death as in any way predictable or inevitable. In fact, he writes... The enigma of God's Messiah dying in behalf of helpless, ungodly sinners is perhaps reflected in Paul's broken, somewhat tortured syntax in verse 7. To get to the heart of the matter, introducing one thought and then stopping in mid-sentence to replace it with a more fitting example. And yet even with this start and stop syntax, the flow of his argument is clear. There's something inexplicable, even inconceivable about the death of Christ. Okay, rarely somebody might die for a righteous person, right? A holy person, someone we can count on to be honest and law-abiding, right? I mean, we all know that someone might possibly, though rarely, give their life for a righteous person. But even then, as I said, it would be a really rare thing. But, all right, well, what about a really good person? I mean, maybe somebody beyond reproach, somebody really kind and sweet and generous and maybe innocent. I, I guess it's more likely that somebody would die for someone like that, right? But even then, well... I'm clearly overdoing it, but in an effort to describe maybe what Holiday claims to be Paul's struggle, that, that Paul, when confronted by the size of God's fantastic gift, really struggles to find some comparison that makes sense and cannot do it. I mean, human logic, the human sense of justice and fair play, even our human efforts to understand what Scripture says about God, all of it runs aground on the enormity, on the enormity of what God has done in Christ. At our very best, at our very best, we might sacrifice ourselves for a saint. At our very best, we might offer our lives for the sake of a truly good human being. But who would die for a sinner? And not just good sinners like us, um, sinners who understand ourselves to be sinners, but also have a sneaking suspicion, and it's probably actually accurate, that we're really not all that bad after all. I mean... 
especially those of us who work really hard to keep the law and do the right thing and tell the truth and not do anything that's going to embarrass us in front of the neighbors. We understand ourselves theologically to be sinners, but in real terms, we know we're really not all that bad. A self-understanding which I think leads to the, the kind of taking the cross for granted that Holiday warns about. It's been so long since any of us have been wretches in need of amazing grace that we find the whole story more comforting than shocking, more common sense than scandal. But when we really consider, when we really consider who we might be willing to die for, or what kind of person we'd consider worthy of such a sacrifice, well, let's be honest. Don't we tend to think of people just like us? Maybe a little more holy, a little more innocent, a little younger, maybe with a longer life to live, a little more righteous, a little more saintly, a little better. I think Paul's exactly right. We can genuinely imagine someone dying for the sake of such folks, maybe not easily, certainly not often, but we can imagine it happening, an act of brave self-sacrifice to preserve the life of someone worth saving. But can we imagine someone dying for, oh, I don't know, how about the emperor? And not one of the good emperors either. Someone like Nero, uh, a persecutor of Christians, as morally bankrupt as you can imagine. Or a Roman centurion, a pagan through and through, and not some noble centurion either, but a venal, corrupt, rapacious, gratuitously violent centurion who takes pleasure in hauling Christians in for an occasional beating. Or about a traitorous Jew like Herod, who sold his soul to Rome and poisoned his children and had an affair with his sister-in-law and killed God's prophet for making him feel even just the tiniest bit of guilt about that. I mean, can we imagine someone dying for someone like that? Or Paul, for that matter, who stood by, who stood by and watched the mob stone Stephen and believed that God wanted him to go around persecuting Christians. Self-righteous, driven, willing to kill for the sake of the gospel, for the, for the sake of the law. Well, feel free to plug in other names. The worst and most, most notoriously bad people who commit the worst kinds of evil. Um, slumlords, the violent, those who exploit the weak and helpless, those who lie to take advantage, those who use power corruptly, those who degrade others, who oppress others, who enslave others. I mean, who would offer themselves? Who would offer themselves for people like that? I mean, even pacifists fantasize about whether ending Hitler's life would be a good thing or a bad thing. But who would seriously argue for sacrificing themselves for Hitler's sake? If anyone would, I think we'd all agree that that person had somewhere along the way stepped off the planet. And yet, and yet, isn't that exactly what Paul is saying here? That what we cannot even begin to imagine, what we even now find inexplicable, unbelievable, has in fact already happened. Something so far outside the boundaries of human reason or human sense of fair play and justice, human imagining, has already been done in Christ. Can we now catch even the, the, the slightest glimpse of just how scandalous this act of God is? No wonder the Jews tripped over it. No wonder the Gentiles insisted that there be proof. But God proves his love for us. 
And that while we still were sinners, Christ died for us. While we still were sinners, not after we'd tidied ourselves up, not after we'd come around and started to obey the law, not after we were circumcised, while we still were sinners. And not just us kind of sort of sinners, not just us theological sinners who lived an otherwise exemplary life but understood ourselves to be in need of grace, not just us more or less good folks who just need a little bit of divine spit and polish to make us heaven-worthy, sinners of every kind, every talent, no matter how degraded or grandiose the sin, no matter how close or how far they are from being well thought of in the world, while we were still sinners. And not just those sinners out there, But we sinners, we, Paul says, while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's own child died for us. God's own chosen one died for us. God's own self in the flesh died for us. No wonder Paul struggled to put it into words. At the very moment when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The point is that Christ did his saving work at an unexpected and morally considered inappropriate moment. Unworthy, genuinely ungodly people benefited from it. This is the mystery of our faith. This is the scandal of the cross. Not only that the Savior of the world would die, but that the Savior of the world would die for sinners. And not sinners who'd seen the light or caught on, who'd begun to make amends and make things right. No, the scandal of the cross is that Christ died and that he died for sinners while we still were sinners. It's a mystery. It's a scandal, an act that only makes sense. And even then, I think we can only grasp it at the edges, an act that only makes sense from the vantage point of someone, a sinner, who understands herself as having been saved by that very mystery. As Carl Holliday writes, God's action through Christ is logic shattering. It can only be seen as a visible forthright expression of divine love. To die for a morally upright person or a really good person may be an act of bravery. To die for a morally bankrupt person can only be an act of love. An act of love. There it is. The root of the mystery. The heart of the scandal. The center of the faith. The love of God. A love which existed before creation. A love which grieved the fall but immediately set about rescuing the fallen. A love which created a people from no people. And then used them to bless the whole world. A love which became flesh and lived among us and revealed God's love unmistakably. A love which revealed itself, offered itself freely for our sake, and while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, gave itself over to death in order to save the world from itself. A love which created the church and other people who were no people and called us to proclaim the mystery, the scandal of that love to everyone we meet. A love which will not be satisfied until all have been reclaimed. A love so big, so wide, so illogical, impractical, extravagant, mysterious, all-encompassing, so wide and deep and forever that even Paul, the first and best 
preacher and poet of our faith, even Paul struggled to describe it. God proves that love for us in that while we still were sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, imagine that. Imagine that if you can. All that love. All that love and for the sake of sinners, for the sake of people unworthy, undeserving, unrighteous, and, well, not very good at all. All that love for me, for you, for us, for the world. And if I understand Paul rightly, all we are asked to do is follow the example of Abraham and Sarah. That is, to say yes to the gift. I used to understand faith in God as about saying no, saying no to this, saying no to that, not doing this, not doing that. I wonder, though, whether the life of faith would be better described as saying yes, saying yes to the gift of God in Christ, and saying yes over and over and over and over again. We don't deserve the gift. We can't earn it, not even by accepting it. Let's not make that yes into a a condition. We can't make ourselves one bit more worthy to receive it. We can only say yes, and then say yes every day for the rest of our lives, and so live like sinners who have been saved for no good reason at all, except for the love and mercy of God. And in so living, give thanks to God for such an overwhelming and inexplicable gift. We contemporary Christians, folks who've grown up in the faith, may be tempted to take that gift for granted. We have become, may have become so familiar with it as to consider it inevitable, right? Something God had always planned to do. And so not surprising, not unexpected at all. It's obvious, a fact of theology and history, not scandalous, not mysterious, but just another familiar part of the Christian story. And we may even have come to understand our place in salvation history to be just as inevitable, just as easily taken for granted, just as easily explained. But if I may claim any leading of God's Spirit this morning, I will claim this, that the Spirit is inviting us, the Spirit is inviting us to see this most unbelievable, inexplicable, scandalous, mysterious, illogical, morally inappropriate gift for what it really is, or at least as close to that reality as we can possibly get, to hear as if for the first time the wonder of it all, to feel as if for the first time the weight of all that glory, to know as if we'd never thought of it before, the power of God's love revealed in Jesus Christ and in his death for us when we were at our very weakest and most sinful and most undeserving. Somebody might die for a righteous person, and somebody might die for a good person, a nice person. Even we sinful human beings are capable of such acts of bravery and generosity and self-sacrifice. But only God would die for sinners. And so God's love is revealed to us. And behold, it's like 
nothing we've ever seemed or dreamt of in our wildest dreams. When all is said and done this morning, it's my prayer that each of us will at the very least catch a glimpse of that gift in all its strangeness. Stripped for the moment of the accumulation of theology and history of Sunday school lessons and sermons and every human attempt to make sense of it and domesticate it, I pray that we will all catch a glimpse of what made even Paul stumble, what made even Paul struggle to describe. More than that, I pray that we will catch a glimpse of that gift and then open our arms, open our hearts, open our minds, and say yes, yes to the gift we have already been given, yes to the God who has given it to us, yes to the one whose sacrificial love is freely given, yes and yes and yes again. And having said yes, I pray that we will keep right on saying yes every step of the way. And so live like thankful people, people who may not be able to in this life fully comprehend the gift that we have received, but who all the same know ourselves, know ourselves to be the recipients of the very love of God. Sisters and brothers, this is what God has done. And this is who we are because of it. And so let us say yes. And amen. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for this inexplicable gift. Like Paul, we struggle to know how to even talk about it. In the end, I pray that you will help each one of us to simply throw up our hands and say, yes, Yes to the gift. Yes to you. And I pray that you will help us to keep saying yes. To keep saying yes. Every step of the way. Amen.